Hello and welcome to the Tuesday, September 5th, 2023 episode of The Musical Universe of Professor Hurst. This is Craig W. Hurst, Emeritus Professor of Music, podcasting from my music bunker, along with my faithful canine companion, Carmel the Wonder Dog, to share with you my latest musical interests and discoveries. I claim no special inside information about the latest or greatest music, nor do I know everything there is to know about music. What I am is a lover of music. I enjoy several genres of music, and I share with you what has currently caught my interest, old, new, outdated, and everything in between. Even old music is brand new if you have never heard it before. The universe of music is a vast one to enjoy. From my discussions, you might find something new to you and of interest to expand your own musical universe. I currently receive no compensation or motivation of any kind from any recording label, recording artist, or the estate of any performer or composer dead and gone to discuss their music and or recordings. Now with that out of the way, welcome to my musical universe. My guest today is jazz composer, arranger, trombonist, and big band leader, Sam Blakesley. Originally from Columbus, Ohio, Sam Blakesley is a New York City-based, award-winning trombonist and composer. Since his arrival in New York City in August of 2017, he has performed at iconic jazz clubs such as the 55 Bar, Smalls, Birdland, Dizzy's Club, the Jazz Gallery, Zinc Bar, Lincoln Center, and the Blue Note. He can be found performing and recording regularly with Grammy-nominated large ensembles like the Dan Pugach Nonette, Remy LaBeouf's Assembly of Shadows, the Terrazza Big Band, Emilio Sola's Tango Jazz Orchestra, and New York Afro-Bop Alliance Big Band, as well as Manuel Valera's New Cuban Express Big Band and Big Heart Machine, among others. He has also performed with jazz luminaries such as Sean Jones, Joe Lovano, Dick Oates, Aretha Franklin, and John Clayton. Sam is an endorsing artist for Best American Craftsman trombones, as well as an endorsing artist for Dennis Wick mouthpieces and mutes. As a band leader, Sam has released four albums, Sam Blakesley Quintet, Selective Coverage, released in 2017, Sam Blakesley and Wishful Thinking, The Long Middle, released in 2021 on Outside in Music, Sam Blakesley Large Group Live at Blue Jazz, recorded 2022 on Golden Mean Records, 
and Sam Blakesley and Wistful Thinking, Busybody, released in 2022 on the Outside in Music label, as well as two singles, Sam Blakesley and Wistful Thinking, Lo, How a Rose Air Blooming, released in 2021 on the Outside in Music label, and Sam Blakesley Large Group, Another Day in Which to Excel, released in 2021 on the Golden Means Records label. Selective Coverage received a glowing four-star rating from All About Jazz, and The Long, Middle, and Busybody were featured in Jazz Is magazine, Textura magazine, Making a Scene magazine, and the International Trombone Association Journal, among other publications. As an active composer for large ensembles, Sam is currently a member of the BMI Jazz Composers Workshop in New York City under the direction of Andy Farber and Alan Ferber. In 2018, he was the recipient of the David Baker Prize in Composition from Ravinia Steen's Music Institute and was also a 2020 COVID-19 Commission Grant recipient from the International Society of Jazz Arrangers and Composers. He also leads the Sam Blakesley Large Group, which is an 18-piece jazz orchestra that features some of New York City's most creative voices. Most recently, the Sam Blakesley Large Group recorded two albums of big band music in May 2023 at Octavian Audio in Mount Vernon, New York. As an educator, he is currently on faculty at the esteemed University of Hartford Hart School of Music in the Jackie McLean Institute of Jazz as artist teacher of trombone. He also served as the program director of the Tri-C Jazz Fest Jazz Academy at Cuyahoga Community College from 2015 to 2017, which was an all-city high school satellite program, as well as serving on the faculty at Youngstown State University, Cuyahoga Community College, and Cleveland Institute of Music. Blakesley has also given clinics and master classes at Oberlin Conservatory, Jazz at Lincoln Center, Youngstown State University, San Diego Performing Arts School, Jazz Arts Group, Kent State University, Ashland University, Lakeside Chautauqua, Lakota West High School, and will be an artist in residence at the University of Akron in April 2023. Sam holds a Bachelor of Music in Jazz Studies from Youngstown State University and a Master of Music in Classical Brass Performance from University of Akron. It is my pleasure to welcome to my musical universe, Sam Blakesley. Hello, Sam. Hey, how's it going? Well, it's going pretty well. Thank you. It's really great to uh, have you on my show and have a, a wonderful opportunity to uh, talk with you and and uh, learn more about you and share that with uh, with my audience. Glad to be here. Thanks for having well, me. Well, 
It, it's super. Um, you know, I'm going to ask you a question that I kind of ask everybody, and that is their origin story. So as a composer and an arranger, for starters, what turned on the light for you to write for big bands? Sure. Um, well, I kind of got interested in big band, uh, specifically um, in writing for it my senior year of college. Um, I was lucky to, I studied at Youngstown State University in Ohio, mm -hmm. and um, there's a just an incredible composer arranger who's also the bass professor there, his name's Dave Morgan, and um, just a remarkable writer and thinker. And when I started taking his jazz arranging class, uh, my senior year is when I thought, it was actually like a really fun uh, way to kind of get out some musical ideas. And I like the idea of orchestrating things and, um, you know, trying to, get interested in things that are maybe more big picture like form and you know things like that and just more than a, a single pitch kind of instrumentalist as a trombonist might dig into so those kind of things are kind of what got me really interested in that and and Dave when I was there just gave me all sorts of recordings of Bob Brookmeyer and John mm -hmm. Hollenbeck and Vince Mendoza and up until that point I'd really only heard the more traditional types of big band music maybe up until about Thad Jones or so um, so hearing a whole and Maria Schneider and, you know, just hearing a whole new form of expression in that medium kind of perked my ears up and wanting to try to do my own thing. With mm -hmm. it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I used to when I taught jazz history uh, in appreciation at the university and I would talk about big bands versus combos, I, I you know, I would uh, very often equate the big band with an artist just having a wider palette of colors to work with. Uh, you can still, you know, be writing the same, you know, or arranging for the same melody, but you can certainly fill that out with a with a broader range of of uh, colors and different uh, different kind of ideas, and and uh, it kind of gives you a little more flexibility. Sure. From that standpoint, it doesn't. There's there's also, of course, you have more flexibility and spontaneity, I suppose, in us in a small group, but mm -hmm. but uh, because you're not uh, not as worried about roadmaps and and uh, you know shout choruses and things like that, but uh, uh, yeah, but that's interesting. I I think that you know I've never been really much myself a composer or arranger, but I've always loved uh, uh, big band music for the the you know the way that their orchestra. I'd always loved Stan Kenton's band and the people that used to write for that band. And you mentioned Thad Jones and uh, always loved, uh, loved his charts and uh, you know, and, and with him, the complexities of even some of the inner parts, you know, it's like you knew that he was writing for a bunch of very fine musicians, even on those second, third and fourth parts. And he, and he wasn't just going to write potato notes for those for those people. Yeah. So, so I always liked his charts. Well, let's get to something that's also really quite, quite fundamental then um, in your creative process. What inspires you when you write? What do you find the spark coming from? Oh, I think I mean, I think the spark has um, kind of like evolved over the years, which is uh, something that I've you know, noticed, especially in the last few, and that when I was younger, I had kind of, you know, the youthful competitive edge of things to, <laughs> you know, try to rise above or write more music and grow my body of work. 
but you know, anymore, I find that whenever I'm writing um, easily or writing with, you know, uh, when I'm not having tons of writer's block and things like that, it's coming from times when I'm just really motivated by something in my personal life um that kind of outside of the realm of music that is inspiring me or troubling me or you know any one of those kind of emotions that can come with it um i've really seen in the last few years composition kind of become like a reflective lens almost of like what's been going on in my life mm -hmm. so um, mm -hmm. and and you know adjusting to uh moving to new york uh i moved in 2017 and like just got established and felt comfortable and then the shutdown happened in 2020 so it's been all mm -hmm. of these you know kind of research or restarts and everything like that over the last half a decade or so um so things like that have really kind of framed my compositional output and um kind of my journey as a musician through all those different phases mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. well I, I i first of all sam i'm really happy to hear you not say a deadline because I oh, well, that's, that's a whole other part of it. No, I know those. I <laughs> no, I know those are realities. I know those are realities. But a very a lot of time when I have to ask that question, that's the first thing that people say. But I think, yeah, I mean, you know, you're reflecting on on, you know, what's going on in your life, what you observe. Uh, I think sometimes, uh, uh, you know, that you, you never know what's going to come your way. Uh, on a day-to-day -day basis and what might stimulate your musical thinking. Yeah. And uh, so it's like, uh, it, it's, uh, it's always kind of a surprise. It's like, I saw this great meme on Facebook yesterday and I liked it so much. I post reposted. It said, I don't think before I open my mouth, I like to be as surprised as everyone else. <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> Definitely. And I think sometimes there's there's that aspect of it. And then I think there's, you know, there's other people who, that, you know, will uh, focus on, uh, you know, maybe they'll create a, or a, a title. Maybe it's just mm -hmm. a working title and then say, I'm going to create some music that reminds me of this, this, yep. this uh, title and uh, lots of different ways. I've, I've always been intrigued by everyone's uh, creative process. And that's why I like to ask about it. Well, let's kind of move from uh, your music just for a moment, and and you can be inclusive of your music, of course. But let's talk about the uh, big band in general as uh, an ensemble uh, in in uh, jazz music, and um, you know, I guess for all intents and purposes, we could say the big band has been around since the late twenties. And so that's, that's, you know, a hundred years practically. Yeah. And um, so would you talk a bit about the big band itself as an ensemble for musical expression and then various approaches to the elements of music that you may take or any arranger may take to create different colors and forms of musical expression? Sure. Um, well, I think, what is interesting, um, you know, kind of starting at the beginning with it, the thing that I find so interesting about big band is that it it was just, it happened so organically with riff bands and things like Count Basie. And it became this really natural extension of like further trying to kind of codify this music that was 
fresh mm-hmm. and new and exciting in the beginning part of the 20th century. And, you know, as the thing that's, that's interesting is that I've, I've viewed jazz as a vehicle of sorts in that it can take you into all of these divergent areas and still be traced under, under the umbrella uh, of a similar kind of tree. But the thing that I think is super cool about big band is that maybe it's albeit a slightly delayed, we've seen that kind of emer- or transformation of the big band go along with that, where now there's, um, you know, especially in New York, I'm just witnessing, you know, so many different writers from around the world using that instrumentation as a vehicle to express their own forms of folk music. And I think that's what is like really, I mean, the especially the scene of like kind of the really wide ranging diaspora of like Latin American countries in New York, uh, I found most exciting to play just because it, it really shows how deep each of those traditions are. And, um, and this is just one little part of it that I'm personally seeing, <laughs> you know, and that's what's so mm-hmm. cool about it mm-hmm. is that it's just, it's created such a wide diaspora of music that can be accessed through that instrumentation. And I think as long as it's continuing to pull on those kind of like global influences, there's really no direction that this music can't continue to go. Mm-hmm. And, and seeing how it's become such a, um, interesting intersection of like you know folk music from around the world as well as contemporary classical music where those things are becoming really intermeshed and things like minimalism becoming really popular with writings or composers like John Hollenbeck and Darcy James Argue and things like that it's just so I just find it a fascinating medium because of how how divergent and diverse it is at this point in history so Mm -hmm. um, I think like as far as the the colors and timbres I mean that's that's one of the things that I love about it the most is that, um, you know, Gil Evans will write in one way and Thad Jones writes in a completely different other from like a, a sonic palette standpoint. And so it seems like it's always this limitless combinations of things you can come up with to further kind of develop a sound that you want to go in. Mm-hmm, and uh, mm-hmm. especially over the last, you know, four or five years after, or yeah, roughly moving to New York, um, kind of getting exposed to just how many colors there are. Um, that's what kind of has kept me coming back because I, I tend to, um, it's not that I don't enjoy listening to like quartet and quintet albums. Mm-hmm. I mean, I still of course do, but there reaches a point when I just want to hear more timbrely going on. So the big band really helps kind of keep that part of my brain more active mm-hmm. and interesting. You know? Well, I think that, uh, uh, and again, I'm just kind of expressing uh, personal opinion, although it's not an original one, because I do believe I heard this somewhere. Whereas Europe gave us the symphony orchestra, America's contribution is the big band. And yeah. the and the big band is, is in many ways uh, uh, in musical styles. I, you know, as the symphony orchestra, you know, is in classical music, the big band is the, is the large jazz orchestra orchestra in 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 well in jazz and uh and we have all of that um extant uh you know colors and greater uh uh versatility i mean you know when you start thinking about woodwind players and all the doubles that they can play i mean you know whether it's flutes or other saxophones or 
or what have you. And, uh, or one of the things that I'm hearing a lot turning up more often is using bass clarinet instead of Barry Sachs. And I think that's kind of a, kind of an interesting color and way to, to, to think of things. And, yeah. uh, uh, but you also, when you mentioned about arrangers and how they write and makes their sound very identifiable, um, I think that that's, I think that's also like true, say, well, for example, I can hear a piece of music and I can pretty much tell you if it's Beethoven because of the way he scores for woodwinds in an orchestra. Yeah. I don't know. There's a certain Beethovenness about it, and I go, yes, that's very different from from Mozart or from Schubert or, or others. And I I think you're absolutely right when it comes to big band uh, arrangers. You know, I think you can pretty much spot a Thad Jones chart from a thousand yards away. I mean, he writes a yeah. certain way. Uh, and Gil Evans is a is a very you know different uh, kind of approach, and of course on his heels you've got Maria Schneider who studied with him and and how she writes, um, and uh, and I and I agree with uh, you know it's a very versatile ensemble, and there are many many different uh, kind of influences. I think definitely what we can say is it's not a dance orchestra anymore. I mean, it's, Definitely. you know, we can play that music and we still do. We still, we still play, you know, big band and, and danceable music, but it's gone way beyond that. And uh, yeah, well, you know, your music, I've, li I've listened to uh, a number of, of things uh, and um, I find what you write very exciting. Um, when you write, and this goes back to your creative process, what typically comes first to you? A, a melodic idea, a rhythmic idea, maybe a set of chord changes, or do you have a, you know, something that, you know, you talked about reflections uh, from your personal life, a, any kind of a made up lyric that might go with a particular scene or a mood. What, what first comes first to you, Sam? So um, you mentioned the, the titles thing earlier, and that's actually a huge, um, part of how I kind of start getting ideas down mm -hmm. and typically the way that it's kind of gone is I've kind of gone the way of like concept albums or concept ensembles so mm -hmm. I have a really you know it's not just like random tunes that then I'm saying okay I want this instrumentation to be a part of it's like really specific sounds that are going to go with these kind of you know these songs um, so the titles for me are one thing um, that's really important um, I don't always start there, but generally it's a good starting point. Um, and then the second thing, you know, I typically would probably generate towards uh, whether it would be rhythmic or melodic. I think it would really depend on the piece. You mm -hmm. know, there are certain mm -hmm. things that I've written that like I wrote at the drum set or wrote just clapping something that then become, you know, the the backbone of, of it. Um but then others where I'm, I'm doing more kind of like I've really studied the the compositional techniques of Bob Brookmeyer a lot, where he takes one thing in particular, where he takes three notes and then kind of just tries to pull as much information out of those three mm -hmm. notes as possible. Mm -hmm. um, so I think a combination of all those things, but typically anymore, um, 
it's funny because when I was younger, all my songs would start with chord changes, just start with chords, and then I'd write mm -hmm. things over top of them. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And as I've gotten older, that has really fallen by the wayside. And the chords kind of become, they're probably the least important part of it for me. Um, and a lot of times if I'm writing something with um, like a long form in mind with big band, oftentimes I'll just write the form, like just the top melody of the piece. Mm -hmm. um with the form and then slowly start to fill in the rest of it but that really allows me to write a much greater amount of material in a short period of time mm -hmm. and it from the outset like allows me to view it from the bird's eye view which has become really helpful you know understanding mm -hmm. how the form really fits together what a six minute piece feels like versus an eight minute piece and really knowing mm -hmm. if that two extra minutes is important or can it be cut or you know things like that so um, yeah, I'd say it's a combination of things, but definitely not okay. core changes anymore. <laughs> okay, okay, okay. Yeah. So, so it's just, uh, yeah, because I'm sure, well, I'm not sure. I would guess there's a better way to say it that, of course, that when you do write, first of all, you, you have a very skeletal version that you start mm -hmm. with, and then you begin to flesh it out with with harmonies yeah. and and forms and things like that. And I happen to think of something well, that I find humorous anyway, and that is that it's my understanding that the composer Anton Bruckner would write out exactly how many measures of music he was going to write before he would ever write a note. He would go through his score and he would number the measures and then, and then you know, so I guess he intentionally wrote all those long symphonies, you know, <laughs> however many measures they were. But, but I think yeah. there's there's something to that when you consider your your artistic expression. You know, it's like you know, there's sometimes when you could say things in three minutes, and there's other times when you need fifteen or twenty. Yeah, you know, exactly. and uh, and and different ways to uh, to express. Sometimes we're writing a poem, and sometimes you're writing a, a short story, or some writing a novel. You know, uh, and all of, all of those kind of ways. And um, I think that uh, uh, you know, bringing together all of that is always intriguing to me. I like I said, I have never been really successful at arranging for for big bands, but. I'm always uh, impressed by uh, by guys like you that do so. Uh, I imagine I'm going to ask maybe an obvious question that you I'm going to ask. Do you keep like a sketchbook? Do you always have just vamps or heads or other ideas that just pop into your head? And so you save them for later and try to use them? Definitely. Yeah. My, yeah. my voice memos, especially I'll like sing stuff and then kind of just transcribe it later. Or there's there's lots of like um you know one of the one of the kind of brookmeyer type things is that you just work as much with a set of intervals as long as you can before any melody even becomes available you know oh, so really? there's there's lots of uh especially in the shutdown i kind of got a little mad scientist with it and there's just pages and pages of three notes in different orders and you know uh -huh, uh -huh. all these kind of just sketches of things and um it's been fun to go back and just pull out oh let's see what i can do with this information and see what i can do with that mm -hmm. uh, but typically it's it's uh it's not as i i found that as i've gotten a little older it's easier for me to like start and really finish something so okay. i don't think there's as many sketches laying around as there used to be but there's still tons of folders in my <laughs> bookshelf mm -hmm. like that for sure so. yeah i i find it i i i don't know if it's because i'm getting older but i find it harder 
to uh, start something and then pick it up again later. Mm-hmm. I, I always feel like if I sit down and start writing, you know, uh, something, an arrangement that I just almost have to sit and get it all done. I mean, I might go back and yeah. edit, but uh, yeah, I, I think I know where you're coming from. Well, um, you're doing uh, some uh, teaching. Uh, you're working as an educator. What do you tell your students who aspire toward uh a, a career in music and concomitant with that question, what is the best piece of advice you can offer based on your experience and what you have observed about other musicians? Hmm. Well, I think, um, you know, one thing that I try to, that I've really tried to instill in my students as far as like the career element to it. I mean, there's all sorts of technical and harmonic proficiency things we talk about. But when it comes to like, okay, when you're done studying with me and you're out in the real world, um, you know, I found that when I was younger, I created a lot of um, goals for myself that were maybe good goals that kept me working hard. But they were essentially goals that I had like no control over whatsoever, whether they happened or not. Mm-hmm. So it would be like, okay, when I'm 25, I will have played at this venue with this person. And it's like, well, I have no... <laughs> I have no control over if that's going to happen. And it can be, it can kind of put a lot of undue pressure on students if they're thinking in that way. So like, I've kind of tried to, uh, you know, let them know what the musical skills are necessary to be a professional in the field, as well as, um, you know, what maybe not so uh, glamorous parts of being a professional musician, if you just want to freelance what those are and it's like I play a lot of commercial music and private events in addition to my teaching and things like that um, but I feel like I'm living a pretty flexible life when it comes to being a freelancer and that's a good thing you know so I think a lot of it is like trying to instill um, really high expectations of yourself from an early age so you work hard and diligently but in a way that um you are completely in charge of whatever the goals are you're trying to reach. And um, I think that that, it also for me is like kept it, the the chase of this music or what we're trying to do like much more pure. Because mm-hmm. if, if, you, if you're not putting your goals through really external means, um, like I must play at this venue by this time or something mm-hmm. like that, then it completely uh, starts eating the internal side like oh well i just want to be making music and i want to make it at a high level and you keep doing that for a long time uh people have to notice that in some capacity eventually <laughs> so mm-hmm, you mm-hmm. know if if they're fine with doing a lot of what they wanted to do from a young age but not everything then i think it's a great great career for you you know mm-hmm. and just the patience of it is is tough you know it's like to be out of school uh, i've been out of school 10 years and in the last two years is when stuff kind of has maybe even started to feel slightly like I thought it would when I was mm-hmm. younger, you know? So sure. it just takes a lot of time and uh, patience with that. But Yeah. I would think when you're going into an environment like New York, that is just blessed with tons and tons of wonderfully creative people, not only in music, but all the arts and sure. you're in that environment uh, it's bound to take some time to gain some traction and, and begin to, you know, to get people to, uh, to, to take notice. And I, 
you know, I, I think that uh, you you offer really an excellent piece of advice in that if you have those uh, kind of fixed goals, so to speak, uh, you're probably going to set yourself up for disappointment. I mean, it's okay to have dreams. It's okay to have aspirations. Mm -hmm. I can remember when I was in high school, I had a goal. I wanted to play with the Stan Kenton Orchestra. And uh, I even went, to, I even decided to go to North Texas because I knew that Kenton drew a lot of players from, from the school there. He'd walk in and say, yeah, you want to go on the road, you know? And of course I yeah. show up in the fall of 79 and he died. So I never did get that, you know, <laughs> that opportunity. Yeah. Um, but, um, you know, those kind of fixed, because like you said before, there's a lot of things you don't have any control over. But one thing you can have control over, and I hear this in what you're saying, is that you can always say to yourself and work towards that every day and every way I'm getting better and better. Yep. You know, and I just have to keep improving. I just have to keep trying. I have to keep, uh, you know, trying new things, accept challenges and, and, and uh, play any kind of gig that comes along, you yep. know, you know, yeah. I, I, I living and teaching in Wisconsin, I, I always would have to, you know, remind my students not to poo poo polka gigs because there's a lot of polka gigs in Wisconsin. Well, heck you're from Ohio. That's part of the polka belt. Yeah. So you know what I'm you know what I'm talking about. Yeah. And and I I say because you know what the greenbacks you get from playing a polka gig are just as valuable as the ones you get from playing a jazz gig, you know. And it's good experience and exposure yep. and so forth. Um, yeah. But having that kind of flexibility and attitude. But well then let's get to that second part. What's the best piece of advice yeah. that 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 you could give either that was given to you or that you can give based on your experience and, uh, uh, and observed about other pros that you've worked with. Well, I think, um, I mean, maybe this is like an oversimplification or oversimplified answer, but, you know, I think there is so much, uh, merit, you know, that can be based on just like being a cool person to be around <laughs> in this field. You know, I mean, it's almost expected that, especially in a New York or an area like New York, it's expected that you play well. That's mm -hmm. just a given, you know, but then, you know, the people that I've noticed that are really working are also like a great hang and very sociable and very easy to work. They're very professional. They're punctual. They come prepared. They, you know, if something comes up, they handle it in a very professional manner. You know, all of these kind of aspects of being really employable, I think, you know, playing well is half the battle. So, um yeah just trying to carry yourself in that sort of way um that makes yourself a very easy musician to be around um you know that's what i've really learned and that there's really no um there's really no room for ego in, in what we're trying to do you know and that's and it, it becomes really um really clear in, in an area like new york where you know like the, the players that i see on 20 dollars gigs will blow your mind you know mm -hmm. and it's just because they're there for the music and they're there to try to keep their own musicianship up and be a part of like the larger scene at work and mm -hmm. and um you know that's just what's really inspiring for me um is just seeing musicians that are always carrying themselves in such a professional manner and obviously playing at a ridiculously high level so mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, that's very that's very sage advice. You know, your plane may get you a gig, but it's it's what kind of person you are that will get you hired back. Exactly. Or hired and and in and in the music world where everything is is pretty much referrals, you know, like uh mm -hmm. you get a gig with somebody else because somebody heard you play and recommended you and so on and so forth. You never want to leave a bad taste in anybody's mouth. You know, right. so it's it's like what I would tell my students is you go on the gig, you keep your mouth shut, you smile and you say thank you. And what you wonder, <laughs> wonderful and what a wonderful opportunity to play with you, you know, kind of thing. Yeah. And yep. uh, uh, but it, it's amazing, Sam, how much I hear that from uh, other other musicians in New York. That's why I love to interview New York musicians. You're all such nice people, you know. <laughs> I really, I mean, I haven't yet run into somebody who was like, uh, you know, a, a, a diva. Everybody's sure. been very cool. And, you know, I yeah. think that's true. Well, even here in my area, the musicians I work with are really uh, super people to be around. And and uh, the ones that haven't been, I don't work with anymore, you know, because yeah. the yeah. last yeah. thing I need as a band leader is somebody who's a pain in the you know what. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Speaking of big bands, what's the major challenge or challenges of maintaining a professional big band these days? Oh man, let me count the ways. Uh, okay, <laughs> I think I think I mean at the top of the list, you know, it's just simple: um, how much money it takes, sure. and how much and how much uh, venues are paying. You know, that's one of the things that. Um, you know, it's really, uh, I expected, it's not that there's not a lot of big band performances in New York. I just expected it to be much more performance heavy, but that um, that limiter of just like how much it costs versus already what your rent is and things like that. I think what's interesting about it, and this might be a short tangent, but um, what's interesting about it is that it's, made so many people just focused on the craft and the craft being like its own standalone endeavor and then when you can get an opportunity to play then it's there um mm -hmm. i think that um you know the other part of it is is finding venues that are sympathetic to what you're trying to do mm -hmm. um you know there have you kind of see a revolving door of that in new york of this place is having bands sometimes and this place is having bands sometimes there's a like after the pandemic, there's been a, a early Sunday slot at Birdland that has opened up. That's given ton of opportunities for people to play that otherwise that slot wasn't really there before. So mm -hmm. it's a weekly thing at a great club that it's not going to cost the leader too much to do it, you know, sure. which is always good. Um, but I think, you know, I think it also the the big band thing, really the struggles of it really depend on what region you're in too. I mean, the whole reason I'm in New York, um, I could really leave the rest of it is just to have, you know, the amount of depth of great musicians that are here, where sure. I ran a band in um, Akron for a long time and Cleveland area. And I mean, everyone that I uh, had in the band are all incredible musicians. But if you're an incredible musician on in a small scene, you're going to be working. So it's like impossible to keep um, the band at a certain level or just people with the shared musical vision that you have. Um, so that's one of the things that is kind of, you know, I'd say it's much easier to perform with your bands uh, in other areas outside of New York 
But when it comes to the performance of it, I mean, I've been in situations where I've called in people hours before and I find an amazing sub that's sure. down to do it, you know? So it just kind of depends on where you're at and, um, you know, maybe also what type of music you're trying to play, mm -hmm. um, you know, where it's at on the traditional versus avant-garde spectrum of things. Mm -hmm. sure. um, but the thing that I, you know, to kind of, and with a positive note, <laughs> the thing that I love about it is that it's still just this thriving scene. Like everywhere you go, there's big bands still. Everywhere you go, there's people writing new music for it. You know, so mm -hmm. it's just uh, mm -hmm. it's it's tireless. It's you know that's what I love about it. So against all odds, there's a thriving scene for New York, and that's just what's really exciting. You know, you know that that made me think of another question. I was gonna I was gonna ask you, and it's not one that I submitted to you earlier. So it may be a dumb question, but it it might be one that that might uh, yield into uh, some interesting insights. Based on your experience, when you play out at a club in New York City, can you gauge what percentage of your audience are other musicians versus musically lay people? That is a totally like venue specific. Um answer where there's some venues okay. where it's a total musicians hang you know the people that are coming to it are musicians people supporting it are musicians um and that you know serves a certain function in and of itself it's a good networking opportunity it creates like fellowship around the music mm -hmm. um but the places in which you know i can play to a room that's like 90 percent non-musicians like birdland would be a perfect example of this that's why it's such a fun gig to play because as a band leader, you know, we're constantly begging our friends and begging people to come to shows. Well, at Birdland, mm -hmm. you know, I played there for the first time in February uh, as a leader and it was sold out, you know, and like I promoted it and I really tried to do my job of getting people there, but it completely exceeded my expectations and mm -hmm. just how packed it was going to be. So, you know, those things are really exciting because, you know, th that is the one challenge of something like New York where there's enough musicians in which the scene actually can support itself only by other musicians. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So you kind of don't get like an actual, um, you know, true reactions to the music of what's landing and what's not, you know, mm -hmm, and, and things mm -hmm. that I was really, really excited to hear or play, you know, maybe you got the most lukewarm kind of reaction and other things mm -hmm. that I thought, Oh, this isn't my best stuff people love you know so mm -hmm. it's it's really good uh as a composer to kind of get that you that's, know non-musician perspective on it is so helpful but. yeah that's that's interesting because i think i compare that to some experiences that i have myself here in the milwaukee area um you know i have a couple of uh, friends that uh, run big bands and i've i don't play with them regularly i've gone and subbed and it almost really seems like the uh, a big band playing somewhere is almost like an excuse for a musician's hang, you know, because even if it's just for the guys in the band, I mean, it's like I've gone and subbed and made all of maybe, you know, 10 bucks, you know, because we played for tips, but we didn't care because yeah. we had a chance yeah. to hang with, you know, 17, 18, 19 other people who love the music as much as we do. You know, that yeah. love big band music and yeah. um, and, uh, you know, and so it's it's really almost as much about the hang of other with other musicians. But that's great to hear that, you know, when you do get I mean, the other thing I always get gassed by 
is when I'll have someone in my audience and they'll say, wow, I really like what you're doing. We've never heard jazz before. I didn't know what you were doing was jazz. I said, yes, it is. Mm -hmm. You know, and you kind of have this chance to educate. It's almost like you feel like a a missionary who's just converted somebody (laughs) and, you know, ready to baptize them, you know, that kind of a thing, because they they're so excited by the the music that you're creating because they've never heard such such uh, kind of stuff. So I, I, I hear you when you say playing like at Birdland for this big crowd of 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 non-musicians but people who love music obviously yeah. uh because they wouldn't have been there if they didn't have some expectation of what they were going to hear but yeah those yeah. those kind of things are really really a gas okay i'm going to get to to something here that uh uh goes back specifically to your your music now i've interviewed a number of other big band leaders uh, out of new york like alan ferber and Jai Lee and Darcy James Argue and Steve Feifke and uh, Miggy Yajama. Oh, I also uh, interviewed Erica Seguine, who I know has been working with you. She conduct what conducted on your uh, album. That mm-hmm. uh, that album isn't out yet, though, is it? Because you just no, went no, to the we studio were... like in March or April. On uh, May. May. So I knew it was the wax is still drying. You know? Yeah, 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 yeah. I knew that. I knew it was coming up. I talked to Erica probably yeah. in uh, April, I guess it was, and oh, talked okay. to her about her her work and her big. And I I noticed that mm-hmm. she was uh, going to be conducting your uh, your band, and uh, yeah. so anyway, so uh, anyway, but all of these folks are are creating really wonderful music, in addition to your great music. What do you feel makes your music, say, different from these other wonderful composers and arrangers? Because they all seem to have kind of a unique sound. And what's making yours unique from theirs? Interesting question. Um, Well, I think, um, you know, what we can kind of, what I've seen in, in big band music is that there's kind of been like two main splits um in like the tree of of what bands sound like or what you know compositional aesthetics are and one is like becoming or you know one is more focused on blending things from like the wind ensemble and contemporary classical music into this Mm -hmm. idiom and one is trying to continue on an extension of more you know jazz traditional jazz specific things but pushing it forward as well Mm-hmm. And I think that one of the things that has been so beneficial about being in New York is like when you're surrounded by all these other writers, like the ones you mentioned that are all incredible, it really forces you to define like what track you're going to go down. You know, at times I it felt very spread before I had moved of what pool you could kind of put my music in. And, um, you know, I've kind of found myself... Um, becoming maybe slightly more traditional as I've gotten a little older um, as far as I'm still trying to write very contemporary music but grounded in maybe more diatonicism or things like that Um, and I've kind of like you mentioned Alan Ferber he's been just probably my biggest mentor in New York Um, since moving I just I was part of the BMI composers workshop and he produced uh, my record so he saw this whole batch of music kind of get written and he was so integral in mm-hmm. helping me with it and i think you know i've have just based so much of what i've done off of him and his methods of things and 
you know, one thing that I always felt about Alan is that his music is complex, but it's not complicated, you mm-hmm. know, and that's, I think if, if you could distill down what I have been trying to foster in my own writing is that, you know, I wanted people to feel like it's ex- extremely fresh music and, um, you know, that they're biting into something new, but they don't maybe have to be so focused on the parts that they can actually sit and, and still enjoy it the way that they would enjoy a Thad Jones or something like that, where there's there's more middle ground with it, you know, and mm-hmm. um, and a lot of that perspective has kind of also been um, just kind of figured out through playing trombone in so many different bands in New York over the last six years. I've really gotten a sense of like, all right, this was too physical or right, this wasn't exciting enough. This was too rhythmic. This didn't have enough rests, you know, things like all these things that I can feel as a sideman. I kind of tried to uh, make it as, as easy as possible on the ensemble. Maybe they would disagree. <laughs> make it as easy <laughs> as possible on the ensemble, but um, but still have it feel like it's, you know, really new and exciting kind of music. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, I think that's, I think that's, uh, you know, I think that's one of the cool things about having all these uh, different co- uh, concepts of uh, how to write for the modern big band. Uh, yeah. And, and there are times when people can draw upon sounds of the past and then meld that with things that are kind of, uh, you know, new and different and, and uh, uh, you know, and the complexities. Interesting though, when we talk about big bands, I, I, I went to school with Frank Green. I don't know if you know Frank, but he's, he's, I, he's, he's uh, the lead player for the Basie band and uh or has been i guess since just about the time COVID hit and i interviewed frank and and i asked him i says you play in a lot of different big bands i said which one has the hardest book and he told me he says by far it's the basie book and not because it's hard to play not because it's hard to play but because of the expectations of the traditions that have been established yeah. You know, when you consider all the great yeah. lead players that have played in that band and you <laughs> yeah. don't want to deviate too much when mm-hmm. you're playing, playing a Basie chart. He said they thought so. He thought that was maybe the hardest book. And um, but uh, I know all of these different band leaders that I've 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 talked about. I I love their music for for a lot of different reasons. I, you know, I think Jai's music, she she does all of this rhythmic layering that that mm-hmm. I'll be darn I'm sitting there listening and I'm you know I'm thinking oh my gosh I don't know if I'd want to be sitting in her band trying to count and keep up with where where I am you know because she really writes some very complex sounding stuff Darcy is mm-hmm. just is to me is 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 uh you know I think he he doesn't get too far outside the envelope but I think he does put some pressure mm-hmm. on it and uh and that's and that's and i love that and uh so and alan alan's been a really was a great guy uh you know and uh talking to him about his his uh arranging and his work and all that he's he's done so all really great uh great people but i i was thinking trying to think you know for myself what makes your made your music sound different and there's one of your charts and i wish i could remember which one it was i was listening to it yesterday oh give me a minute here anyway i thought you know this really has a very it had a really strong bass riff as i recall Mm. Mm. see if i can remember which one it was now and i thought okay maybe he's coming from a 
from uh you know influence of some uh you know r&b or or uh hip-hop influence or something let me see here i'm gonna i'm gonna find the name of that oh for crying out loud oh uh, new blood it might have been uh just a second here oh i think it was on the uh Oh, hmm. well, I know I was, I was listening to I, new blood. No, it wasn't it. Well, I'm not going to find it and I don't want to waste our time. I just know that it, I thought it had a rather unique kind of approach to it because it, it sounded to me almost like uh, you came up with a, with a bass riff kind of idea and then built, built the, the, uh, uh, melody and so forth on top i thought well that sounds kind of different that's kind of cool but uh anyway i i i shouldn't have brought it up because i should have known what i was talking about and i did <laughs> anyway okay well we've maybe already uh, uh addressed this but i'm going to ask this question again in a, in a way maybe um you, you uh you know when i was in high school and and college and i i was very much into like uh, woody herman and stan kenton and buddy rich and maynard ferguson and doc severson and and even had the opportunity to play with toshiko akiyoshi and lou tabak and we had him in as guest clinicians where i went to college and it was fun playing her charts and having us having her rehearse our band but anyway and and then I, I you know I went to North Texas, which has a very strong big band program. But my question is, uh, from your estimation, how, if at all, has jazz big band music changed just over the last fifty years? And you've kind of alluded to this a little bit already when you've brought in the idea of different uh, musical resources that have kind of been absorbed by the big band. But is there anything else you well, can? Yeah, I think, I mean, in addition to that kind of, you know, new globalism within the genre, I think, um, you know, maybe a different kind of aspect of it that's changed in the last 50 years. And I'm really only saying this based on, you know, people of kind of Alan's generation and older um, in New York, you know, they just describe about like how there's just countless writers pursuing this now. And mm -hmm. while it wasn't, unpopular to be a big band writer there was a much you know much more of a focus overall on um you know just being an instrumentalist and releasing kind of small group records and things and we've not only seen the emergence of um standalone composers you know uh people like jay hay or or erica you know come to mind or maria you know mm -hmm. that are are comp just composing and they're you know instrumentalists but they're not maybe doing it professionally Mm -hmm. And then there's also the whole composer performer thing where there's people like Alan or Remy LaBeouf or Miguel Zanon who are doing large ensemble composition and playing at this like a ridiculously high level. And I think that we've seen um, it's just inspiring to be kind of writing music around this time around all these amazing writers who are some even younger than me. And, and I think that is maybe some a way that it's changed is that, you know, it hasn't gotten easier to be a musician. It hasn't gotten easier to <laughs> write and lead a big band. And yet we're seeing people against all odds, just continuing to pursue it. 
Um, so that's, I think, something that, is, that has really changed maybe in the last 50 years is just how many more people have access to the music and how many people are choosing that this is the lane that they want mm-hmm. their mm-hmm. musical expression to go down. So, um, mm-hmm. yeah, I think the fact that more people are doing it is, is like paramount to the continuation of, you know, the cultural treasure that is the big band. So I think that, you know, maybe doesn't musically answer the question, but at least um, I think that's how the landscape has kind of changed, especially in an area like New York. Well, I think that there is there is a lot of what you're saying. I think that, you know, anytime you broaden the base of the pyramid, the pyramid's going to be able to go higher. Yep. And, it, and it sounds to me like from what you're saying, there is a critical mass of of uh, composers and arrangers and musicians that are churning out. Well, churning out's not a good term because that sounds like we're mass producing everything. And we know that this is a craft, uh, uh, but uh, that are putting out a lot of really great music and it's just yeah. there at our exposure. But one thing I'm really curious to, cause I thought about this myself, if you know, this change, that has occurred or is occurring because I'm sure it's ongoing. It's not static. Would you say it's focused on the musicians in terms of their level of playing, their musical backgrounds, and maybe even their level of formal education who play in big bands today? Or is it just the way that composers and arrangers are trying to write for the big band? Oh, interesting. Um, I think that, I mean, that really depends on the composer, you know, like mm-hmm. someone like, uh, you know, Remy LeBeau, for example, like I've gotten to play in his ensemble a lot over the last few years. And and the only reason why I feel like moderately prepared to play that music is because I have a master's in classical music, okay. you know, and because it just demands so much of the musician. Um, but then there's others where, you know, you maybe can you don't have to have that same type of training and i think um i don't know i i i think it really there maybe has been a shift in that the the level of the instrumentalists has gotten so high um especially with things like woodwind doubling capabilities and things like that that i think there is i mean some of the music that i've played in new york has just been like borderline impossible and I go to the show and I'm like, oh, there's no way we're going to make it through this. And I hear the recording and it's just nails, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, so the I magic, the magic happens. Like, yeah. <laughs> you know, and it's I think that kind of it's, you know, you see things like similar, you know, I don't necessarily want to conflate the two completely, but something like Rite of Spring, where it's like when it was written, it's like this is not playable. The bassoon line is cannot be played. And mm-hmm. then now that's just expected. And I think there's been a really cool kind of, um, you know, push like that in in, um, in the jazz, you know, big band world, especially with the contemporary classical and minimalism influences kind of coming in. It just it 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 added a whole different skill set to what it is to be a jazz musician. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, like this kind of maybe answers where my music or where I want my music to fall to is like I want it. I want it the music to feel like a jazz musician can sit down in the chair and just play it, mm-hmm. you know, um, even if it doesn't necessarily sound like that, that's what I want it to feel like. And I, I also think it's like, you know, the thing that I, one of the things I don't necessarily like about 
the way the big band direction has gone is that there's less and less importance around the soloist. It oh. becomes more about the large form composition, you know? So mm. a lot of mm. when I was trying to put all the, together the music for the record, you know, that was something that I was really trying to be conscious about. It's like, you know, I typically don't have a lot of uh, soloists on each song, but like if you're soloing on a song of mine, that's like all you and you will by all means get to completely express yourself by the end of it. And I think that's something that I would like to see kind of be turned over as more responsibility to the soloists in the music as opposed to just playing the written parts. Mm hmm. Well, I no, I I think there's I think there's something uh, I think that's a fair statement, and I maybe just kind of uh, wonder, you know, as a as a an educator, uh, are, are we seeing the influence of the that jazz as an academic study? And it has been part of the academy. In other words, are we seeing more musicians on the scene today that come with university backgrounds than we certainly would have seen uh, 60, 70, 80 years ago? Yeah. Uh, and and has that, and it's like you say, you have a master's degree in classical performance. You know, and I, as I recall, when, when I was coming, it seemed like, you know, you did people I knew that were successful did everything well, whether, whether it was a, a class, you know, playing classical or playing in jazz or, or brass quintet or what, what have you. And I, I just wondering has, has the uh, uh, jazz being part of the curriculum in higher education had that kind of an impact where we are all about the, you know, about playing the notes on the page and playing it very accurately, but have we lost that love and feeling where it's when it's related to expressing yourself in an extemporaneous fashion as an improviser? Yeah, I think, I mean, I think there's certainly a correlation with it. I think that the other thing that is, you know, interesting to kind of weigh out with that is that it certainly has been institutionalized to a degree. And I think that that it really does have an impact on, you know, maybe the, the expectations of me strictly as a freelancer, whereas it's kind of like do whatever gig, especially in New York, you know? Um, but I think that like the other side of the coin with it maybe becoming more institutionalized is this that like, if more people are playing this music, the more it survives, you know, mm -hmm. and I think that, I, agree. I think that is tough. I mean, you know, as an educator too, you know, as I've kind of gotten back into that world, it's always, it is a little like I have uh, sometimes some moral dilemmas of like, you know, I know how hard it's been for me to be a freelancing independent artist, you know, and to turn people out into that world saying, if you do what I do, it'll be totally fine. It may not be, <laughs> you know, right. and that's what's kind of tough about it. But I think that is if we just are able to create and foster more ambassadors for this music, you know, I don't know if it'll lead to a revival of jazz in a popular sense, per se. But I think that it's it's it can't hurt the music to have more people doing it, you know. Mm -hmm. um, but but the big band is an interesting kind of lens of like, 
this this melt of European and and other things, you know, and um, and and how uh, how the ensemble is that you know the large ensemble of, of jazz is already kind of an extension of a European aesthetic, you know. So being in touch with that is is kind of an interesting thing, and and that's you know when it comes to the role of the improviser, that's what I do feel like is really skewed with some big band music today is that the European large form instrumentation instrumentation of it is is a little more prevalent than the improvisatory, you know, African influences and black influences sure. that make this music what it is. So mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, it sounds, you know, and I think that you make an, an also make a good point in there that when we uh, educate people, maybe not everybody's going to turn out to be um, a successful gigging musician, but we might turn them into a successful someone who does adjunct kind of stuff for the arts. Because if someone doesn't find success in one area, they may very well in another. And as I used to always like to tell, you know, I was never ashamed teaching music appreciation because I was trying to create audience members, you know, and uh, to get people to listen to music and understand and appreciate it so that they would sit in our audiences and, and love what we do. Well, Absolutely. Sam, I've got I've got a, just a few more questions, and there were some that I've got that I, I submitted to you, and then I realized, well, duh, I'm not going to ask you about his new recording project in the future because I know he's got one in the can. You just went in the studio in May. What can you tell us about this new recording of yours? Uh, you know, without revealing any top secret information, <laughs> you're not supposed to tell us. Sure, sure. Uh, well. Yeah, I mean, I've been leading the San Blakesley Large Group, which is my big band, for like 10 years now. And uh, this was the first studio recording. And we actually documented uh, two records of music. So we've got 15 songs mm -hmm. um, that we recorded over three days. Uh, so now I think in September, October, um, I'm really excited to have um, Brian Montgomery. Um, we did mixing for Maria Schneider and, and Alan and pretty much every big band writer in, in New York um, did the mixing and, and edits for the, the album. So I just can't wait to dig into it with him uh, starting this fall. And then um, it'll be two separate releases. So once it's mixed and mastered, then, um, you know, there'll be two records just kind of waiting to get put out. Um, and then in addition to that, um, I recorded a live record last fall with, uh, I have like a small group called Wistful Thinking. It's kind of, uh, it's kind of done a lot of different things at this point. The first record was like a drummerless chamber ensemble, very pastoral. And the second one was kind of more fusion and electronic focused. And then this next one was kind of just like, you know, we wanted to just do a live record that mm -hmm. sounds like a live record. So that's probably going to be coming out in the fall or early next year. But so I've kind of created a little backlog of releases that I need to get out there, but it's a good problem to have. So that's what I'm working on. Well, <laughs> yeah, there's nothing wrong with having things in the can, just waiting, waiting yeah. to, to be, uh, you know, polished to a high gloss and uh, ready for release. So these, uh, this, these two records you just finished, then uh, you're going to release them at separate times or are you going to release them at, mm -hmm. are you? Okay. Good. Yeah, good. So we'll probably have... be like nine to twelve months apart. So oh, be okay. Some nice little pipeline of music coming. 
comes okay. soon. <laughs> well, you know, that's good. I mean, you know, I, I, I assume that you're constantly and currently uh, writing uh or putting your ideas somewhere i mean you know like arnold sure. schoenberg uh used to once said a composer must and uh <laughs> so that's that's great that's great uh well i tell you there's one more thing i'd like to know uh where can we come hear you play in the next few weeks oh man um i actually don't have anything for just a little bit um mm -hmm. i've been doing lots of teaching uh over the summer at some camps and things and then um working on some performances with a large group, both um, at Blue Jazz in Akron, Ohio in October. Mm -hmm. And then it uh, looks like something's going to be happening in New York in uh, November. So just kind of gearing up for that. And um, yeah, that's about it. So. Okay. Okay. <laughs> well, yeah. one of these days, one of these days I'm going to show up. So remember oh, my face. Uh, I keep telling my wife, we got to go to New York sometime. I said, I've been interviewing all these musicians. I need to go and, hear him excuse me hear him play in in some clubs and and uh so if i uh i show up uh i hope you remember this face so that oh, we could we could meet sometime <laughs> but that's that's uh that's really great well and then you know i think too late summer is always kind of a slow time for everything you yeah. know because yeah. a lot of people are going on vacation and and mm -hmm. and that sort of thing so well, you know, I like to try to be as thorough as possible, but I know I'm not perfect. So I've got one more question to ask you. Is there anything else you'd like to add or tell my audience that I have not asked you about? Oh, man. Um, support your local artists, I guess. <laughs> that would be a good thing. Here, here. Uh, here, there's, here. There's, there's uh, amazing musicians everywhere and um you know, people affecting their communities in a variety of ways. So, um, you know, if we want to keep this music going and thriving, then, you know, it doesn't just have to be in areas like New York or LA or Chicago, you know, and that there's so much support that can be happening on, uh, on smaller scenes and smaller cities and that's good yeah. for everyone. So I guess that'd be it. <laughs> well, I, I appreciate that because I've, I've been working to get a regular jazz night going here in my community of Waukesha, Wisconsin. And mm -hmm. uh, so far, we've got, uh, uh, since May, been playing every Monday night. And then starting September, we're moving to Tuesdays. And I, I anyone within the sound of my voice who's, you know, within traveling distance of Waukesha, we'd love to have your support and get out, go to Akron and hear Sam and and get out and support live music. I, I couldn't uh, agree with you more. We we love to <laughs> love to have that. Well, Sam, thank you for taking time to talk with me today. And uh, I want to wish you all the best with what I'm sure thank is going, going to be a continued successful musical future. Well, thank you very much. And it was wonderful to speak with you. And uh, thanks for having me. Thank you and have a great rest of your day. My discovery composer of the week is Josef Matthias Hauer, born in Wiener Neustadt, in 1883, he died in Vienna in 1959. Hauer attended the Wiener Neustadt Teacher Training Institute from 1897 to 1902, and then, apart from breaks for war service, taught in elementary schools in Krumbach and Wiener Neustadt until he was prematurely pensioned off in 1919. 
At the same time, he was active as an organist, choral conductor, and cellist. He taught himself theory and composition, passed further state examinations as a teacher of singing, the violin, and the piano, and at the age of 28, began to compose. Hauer's early works, opuses 1 through 18 of 1912 to 1919, which he described retrospectively as the first onset of my 12-note music, are mostly chromatic, yet still tonal or modal, though some passages also explore atonality in a manner loosely similar to the contemporary music of Schoenberg and Webern. These early pieces range from songs and piano miniatures to the dramatic Apocalyptische Fantasy, Opus 5 of 1913, which is scored for chamber orchestra and his most significant early work. From 1915 until the end of his life, Hauer lived in Vienna. There he associated with the Schoenberg Circle, as well as with Altenberg, Bar, Krauss, Luss, and Eaton. His most important association was with the philosopher Ebner, who worked with Hauer on his first music theoretical work, Uber de Klangfarbe, and who later published a lengthy analysis of Hauer's Opus 5. Ebner's theology provided an important impetus to Hauer's discovery of the 12-tone law in August of 1919. Initially, Hauer attempted to control the number of pitches that would be circulated before the same one was reused, and his Nomos, Opus 19, of August 1919, contains sections that employ collections of eight 12-pitch classes. Exclusively 12-note passages occur at important structural points, and the opening bars employ five statements of a 12-tone row in 12 monophonic phrases of five notes each. Hauer soon employed 12-note collections only, and his works from Opus 20 forward explore a broad range of approaches to 12-note structure. In the 20-year period between 1919 and 1939, Hauer wrote over 70 works, many of which are multi-movement pieces, including operas, song cycles, chamber and symphonic music, and piano collections. After 1939, he wrote nothing but pieces he termed Zvoltenspiel, most of which are identified only by the date of their completion, though a few of these carry specific titles. Hauer often sent completed Zvoltenspiel to friends, thus it is impossible to know how many of these pieces were composed. It is likely that he wrote over 1,000 in the period between 1940 and his death in 1959. While Hauer claimed to have been the first to compose music in full consciousness of the twelve-tone law, his importance lies foremost in his work as the first twelve-note music theorist. 
His Vom Wesen des Musikalischen was first published in 1920, and in it he clearly states that a piece should employ all 12 notes before any is sounded again. In this work, as well as in his Deutung de Milos of 1923, and in many short articles written during the early 1920s, Hauer argues for the superiority of atonal over tonal music, grounding his claims by offering support drawn from acoustics, culture, and spiritual studies. By late 1921, he had discovered the 44 tropes, hexachord pairs that exhaust the 12 notes, and trope classification subsequently became an important aspect of Hauer's understanding of atonal pitch structure. Years before the 12-note theoretical writing of Eimert, E. Stein, and F. H. Klein, Hauer had set forth the basic principles of his approach in print. His theoretical writing, including detailed discussion of the tropes and numerous musical examples appearing in his Vomilos Zerpauka of 1925 and dedicated to Schoenberg, and Zwölftontechnik of 1926 has unfortunately led to misconceptions about his middle period music, pieces often characterized as mere exemplars of his trope theory. While it is true that a number of Hauer's musical works between opuses 20 and 89 employ pairs of unordered hexachords, there are also a significant number that employ an ordered series, and in those employing a series there is frequently some systematic process of rotation at work as well. Schoenberg held Hauer's ideas in high regard in the early and mid-1920s. The two composers for a time discussed the idea of jointly authoring a book and even of opening a school for 12-note composition. Hauer's ideas about the role of the composer, however, differed markedly from those of Schoenberg and the Second Viennese School. While Schoenberg, Berg, and Weber held to the traditional role of the composer as expressive artist, Hauer argued that the composer's role was to suppress any will to personal expression in music and to work only ex at expressing the spiritual truth inherent in the twelve notes themselves. He went so far as to reject the title of composer, thinking of himself instead as an interpreter of the twelve notes. Hauer argues that atonal music exists on a higher spiritual level than tonal music, and that the most perfect form of atonal music employs all twelve notes in equal proportion. Hauer's references to Goethe's scientific writing, likely under the influence of Rudolf Steiner's interpretations, and to Chinese philosophy throughout his theoretical work, also suggest that Hauer was influenced by the various esoteric and occult movements that had flourished in Vienna since the late 19th century. Since returning to 12-note composition in 1919, Hauer had struggled to reject in practice what he had denounced in theory, but by the end of the 1930s, Hauer moved into the final stage of his career 
marked by a clear and complete renunciation of personal expression in music. Ironically, Howard's music was pronounced decadent in the 1930s, and some of his scores were included in the touring exhibition of degenerate art at about this same time. Though Howard's historical importance is as a music theorist, he received numerous awards for his compositions during his lifetime. In addition to performances of his works in the 1920s, Howard was awarded the Viennese Artist Prize in 1927, and from 1930 was paid a state honorarium. There was renewed interest in his work in Vienna for a time after World War II, and Hauer was accorded honorary membership in the Vienna Konzerthausgesellschaft Award of uh, title of professor in 1954 and received the major Austrian state prize in 1955. The All Music Guide lists 13 recordings of Hauer's chamber music, one recording of his violin concerto, 52 recordings of his pieces for keyboard, one recording of his opera Salambo, five recordings of his compositions for orchestra, and 12 recordings of his works for solo voice with accompaniment. In my show notes is a link to a YouTube performance of Hauer's Concerto for Violin and Orchestra, Opus 54, performed by Thomas Christian Violin and the Radio Symphony Orchestra of Vienna, conducted by Gottfried Rabi. That wraps episode number 153. My show notes, along with links to artists' websites, recording label websites, YouTube videos of artists' performances, are all posted on my Facebook page, The Musical Universe of Professor Hurst. Next week, I'll be interviewing New York City-based jazz bassist Matt Closey. Other upcoming interviews include New York City-based pianist and composer Lex Corton, Chicago-based trumpet player Zachary Finnegan, Madison, Wisconsin-based Chicago blues harp player, singer, and member of the Cashbox Kings, Joe Nosick, and New York City-based saxophonist Quinson Knockoff. So don't touch that dial. If you have questions, comments, or a suggestion of an artist, composer, or musical style for me to consider, you may email me at h-u-r-s-t-c at u-w-m dot e-d-u. So until next time, this is Professor Craig W. Hurst and Carmel the Wonder Dog signing off from the musical universe of Professor Hurst. Have a great day.